Today on The Journey with Steve DeWitt, a message on Christ's promise of peace. Friends, realize that peace is not the absence of hostility, okay? It is a kind of prospering wholeness. That is what shalom is. You wanna know what the opposite of peace is? The opposite of peace is trouble, trouble. And notice what Jesus says here, let not your hearts be troubled. Welcome to The Journey with Steve DeWitt. In today's tumultuous world, many find themselves struggling to obtain peace, leaving them longing for a solace in the midst of the chaos. But today, Pastor Steve brings us to the Gospel of John to highlight the comforting promise of our Savior, peace I give. We're discovering how to let the peace of Christ rule in our hearts with another lesson from the Upper Room. Remember, you can also access this series online at thejourney.fm. But now to get us started, here's Pastor Steve. How about we start with a little history and Latin? Doesn't that sound exciting? A little history and Latin here this morning. Uh, and to talk about the Roman Empire. You know, Christmas time, there's a lot about the Roman Empire and certain, uh, you know, uh, emperor who required a certain kind of counting and how all that fits into this. So there's a lot about the Roman Empire around Christmas. And uh, when you think about the Roman Empire, a thousand years of largely dominating the world, it's an amazing story. There are 200 years of that thousand years that are viewed as the, like the, the golden years. These were the years where there was relatively little conflict uh, and largely there was peace in the world. And uh, that's unheard of in human history. I mean, it's, it's maybe never happened since. And so historians talk about those 200 years, and they call it the Pax Romana, the peace that Rome created and sustained and protected. Now, when you stop and you think, well, how did they do that exactly? Uh, the answer is obvious. They did it by sheer force and intimidation. The crucifixion, as an example of, of uh, incredibly harsh Roman intimidation. Pax Romana. You could argue that one reason that Jesus was put to death by Pilate was Pax Romana. Rome required peace, and all threats were summarily crushed. And this is how humanity makes peace, okay? Through the sword, by the gun, Pax Romana, Pax Humanitas, peace, the human way. And peace is a major theme in the upper room discourse. And Jesus gets on this theme of peace because his disciples, as he's telling them that he's leaving, they are not experiencing peace. They are greatly troubled. They are in distress. And so I call this section in the upper room Pax Christus. The peace of Christ, the peace that Jesus offers to his disciples, and that includes us here today. And that peace is a very different peace than Pax Romana. It is Pax Christus. 
So with that, let's turn to John chapter 14, beginning in verse 27, where Jesus says this, peace I leave you, with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives, do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You heard me say to you, I'm going away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I'm going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe. I will no longer talk with much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me. But I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. May God bless his word to his church here today. Now, most of this message is going to be about Pax Christus, peace of Christ. But there's some other really important things that Jesus says I want to talk about, and then we'll get to, uh, to the peace. And so these things I'm just introducing with, did you know? Okay, did you know? Did you know? Okay, so we've got some did you knows here. Here's the first one. Did you know that Jesus was looking forward to ascending and returning to God the Father? Did you know he was looking forward to it? Look at, look at verse 28. You heard me say to you, I'm going away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I am going to the Father. You could summarize the whole upper room with this. I'm out of here, okay? Peace out. <laughs> I'm, I'm leaving, okay? There's a quick summary of it. And here what Jesus says is, if you loved me, you would be happy for me because I'm going back to the Father. Now, the disciples, were they happy about this? No, they were not happy about this uh, because the disciples were not thinking about what was best for Jesus. They were thinking about what was best for them. By the way, that has plagued the church for 2,000 years, Jesus' disciples thinking about what's best for them rather than what's best for Jesus. But that's a side point. I just throw it out there for your consideration. If they had a little better theology and a little less selfishness, when they heard that Jesus was going back to his father, Jesus says, you would celebrate it. You'd be happy for me. Now, don't we oftentimes find ourselves in the tension of, uh, of this when people leave you and start a new chapter in their life. Don't we all often feel that way? We have a, a friend or a colleague that is, you know, uh, something's going on, you know, they, uh, they're moving on. We kind of feel this tension inside. Maybe uh, the kid's going to college. Are we happy for the kids going to college, parents? You can think about that. How about uh, parents moving out of the childhood home? Are we glad when mom and dad move out of the house that we grew up in? Yes and no. Yet Jesus says here, if you realized what it means for me to get to return to God the Father, you all would be so happy for me. You would be rejoicing with me. Now, it doesn't say this, but... I think we can also see that Jesus has great joy as he is thinking about his return to the Father. He doesn't look forward to the cross. We see that in Gethsemane. He doesn't look forward to death, but he looks forward to what is on the other side of those things, which is his return to the Father. And by the way, isn't this how we as Christians celebrate, if you will, 
at the funeral of a, of a fellow Christian, a loved one that has died in the faith, don't we sort of have this, right? Where we are sad for us. We are glad for them. We rejoice for them. Okay, now get this. If Jesus rejoiced to return to God the Father, what does that tell us that it's like to be with God? It's kind of like when Jesus says to the thief on the cross, today you'll be with me in, where? Paradise? I mean, Jesus calls it paradise. Is that a five-star TripAdvisor rating? I would say so. If the Son of God says, it's amazing, I'm gonna see you there in a couple hours. Should that not reassure us as Christians that the, the, the very best that this life has to offer and this world has to offer is nothing to compare to what it means to be with God. And Jesus is contemplating you know, leaving this earth and all the stuff here and going back to God. And he says, if you knew what it was like, you would rejoice for me. So I say that as a, as a comfort here, either for you losing a loved one or maybe your own death as you think about it. I think about my future. I don't look forward to the death part, but I look forward to the after the death part. And that's kind of what Jesus is saying here. So Christian, rejoice that Jesus is there and someday you'll be there too. And it's gonna be great, okay? It's gonna be great. Here's the second did you know. Did you know that God the Father is greater than Jesus. Did you know that? Look at what he says in verse 28. For the Father is greater than I. Is your Trinitarian theology getting a little squirmy right now? I would say that it should, because this is a verse, this is one of these verses that in, historically, those that have wanted to create a kind of, uh, to be heretical, heresies of the past, Arianism as a key example, that want to diminish the deity of Jesus, you think, where do they get thoughts like that? How about this verse right here? When Jesus says, the Father is greater than I, doesn't that insinuate that there is somehow a, you know, a difference of worth in the Trinity, that the Father is greater in some way than Jesus? So how do we answer that? Well, we have to ask the question, in what way is Jesus saying that the Father is greater than he? He didn't mean that God the Father is more God than he is God, is more divine than he is divine. He doesn't mean that. This took the church some time to figure out. And if you read through church history, three centuries into the story of the church, the Nicene Creed was the creed that kind of clarified within the Trinity that the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are co-equal, they're co-eternal, but for 300 years, they wrestled with it, and Arius the heretic helped the church clarify that. That's one reason to be glad for heretics. Might be the only reason, but it does help the church clarify what is true. But the question was, how can there be three personalities in the Trinity, all equal, yet with an apparent functional hierarchy? What do I mean by that? Well, just think about what we've seen in the upper room. Jesus says, the Father sent him. Okay, John 3, 16. That's, uh, our children know that part of the theology. Maybe you never thought about, well, what does it mean that the Father sent the Son? And Jesus says that the Father also sends the Spirit. 
So the Spirit is sent by the Father, the Son is sent by the Father. Does that not insinuate that somehow the Father is doing something different than the Son and the Spirit? Indeed, doesn't it sort of indicate that the Spirit and the Son are subordinate to the Father? And indeed it does. Within the Trinity, there is leadership. There is an org chart, if you will. And at the top of the org chart within the Trinity is God the Father. He is the one that is leading. He is the one that is purposing and planning. He is the one that is sending. He sent the Son. He sent the Spirit. Yet, each member within the Trinity, equal value, equal worth, sharing the same divine nature. Does hierarchy mean a difference of worth? Is the Father worth more than the Son? And the answer is obviously no, okay? No. There is within the Trinity a different function. The Spirit doesn't do what the the Son does. The Son doesn't do what the Father does. They have different roles. They are absolutely equal, but they have different roles and functions within the Trinity. They are essentially equally the same. That's why we can say that there is one God. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. They dwell in absolute equal unity, yet they have different roles within the Godhead. What I just said is highly controversial in the society that we live in. Our society hates hierarchies. Our society chafes at anything that would suggest that somebody might have would be greater, if you will, in Jesus' terms, than somebody else. In our society, equality of worth requires sameness in function. That's why your kids get participation trophies today. Different roles or functions are bad in our society if they indicate some kind of a difference in, in, uh, in the hierarchy. Now, Let me give you one example of this. Think about what the Bible says about sexual gender roles. We find in the Bible that the Bible says that men and women are equally made in the image of God, are of absolute equal worth and value. There is no difference between a man and a woman in that sense in the eyes of God, nor should there be for us. Yet, in the Bible, we find God calling equals to different roles in key aspects of human society, within the church, within marriage, and within the family. And the Bible celebrates this. The Bible says this is a good thing. God said so at creation. Does our society look at the Bible and go, oh, we agree with that? No, they do not, okay? In our culture, again, role means value, so we must all have the same roles. We gotta all be the same. Jesus celebrates the Father's leadership and gladly submits to him. The Son is subordinate to the Father, and he loves it, okay? Doesn't see it as demeaning in any way. And so I point this out so that you might see how the Trinity, the essential doctrines of the Trinity, are very countercultural in the world that we live in. And I wonder how might our culture be influencing your own perspective on roles and worth. Is Jesus right or is our society right? 
Here in the church, we go for Jesus, right? <laughs> Amen. So in that way, the Father is greater. That's what he's getting at. He is the leader of the Trinity, but he is not essentially greater. They are co-equal. Are you with me? Okay, so that's what that means. Here's a third did you know. Did you know that Satan is, we'll fill in the blank here. Here's what Jesus says. I will no longer talk with you, for the, much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me. So here at this point, Jesus brings up the enemy of God. The Bible calls him Satan. He has some other word, names in the Bible. And Jesus here identifies him as the ruler of this world. We live in a world where God's enemy, Satan, exercises authority over this world. He is the ruler of this world. Now, you might be saying to yourself, wait a second. I thought that Jesus was the king of kings and lord of lords, and isn't this my father's world? The hymn said so. And so how could Satan be the ruler of this world and God be sovereign over all? What is this, what is this insinuating? Let me illustrate it this way. Here we are in Northwest Indiana. And in Northwest Indiana, if I was to say, who's the ruler of Northwest Indiana? Depends how you want to think about it. You could say, well, maybe the sheriff is the ruler of Northwest Indiana. He has authority. He's the sheriff over the place. The sheriff is the, is the, is the person in charge. Well, Maybe you could say, well, but politically, we've got like a county council, and what about the governor of Indiana? Isn't he kind of the ruler of our state, and so isn't he kind of in charge around here? But in another sense, you could say, but Congress, like they're over the nation, and the president, and aren't they kind of the rulers of where we live? And then you could look at it a different way, say it's the National Guard, or it's the U.S. military. I mean, they got the power, they got the might, they're really in charge if they ever wanted to be truly. Here's the point. We live with rulers who have rulers over them. True all over the world. And that is what we find with Satan. Satan has authority in this world. God has delegated that, and you can talk to God about why he decided to do that later on, someday, you know, uh, in heaven. But that's just the way it is. We even know this, if you think about Jesus' temptation, when Jesus was tempted, Satan offers the kingdoms of the world to him. Jesus doesn't say, you have no authority to do that. He doesn't dispute the fact that Satan had the authority to give to him the kingdoms of the world. So we know that Satan has that authority, but we also see in the Bible that Satan has to ask God to persecute Job. So we see there that Satan's asking permission from God to do certain things. So what's going on here? Here's what's going on, is that Satan has a certain authority in this world that God has given to him, but it is not an ultimate authority, okay? So he is a ruler, but he is not sovereign. He is not the ultimate authority in this world. And note that Jesus here says about Satan, he has no claim on me. Why does he say that? Well, because part of Satan's jurisdiction is the moral claim upon sinners. So in a sense, we could say that Satan has a claim on us. I'm gonna get around to this in a moment, but on, on people, 
Because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. God has given Satan this authority. It's the, it's the power over sin and death. He is the uh, Lord of darkness, after all. And so within that authority, Satan has a claim on everyone except Jesus. Notice that's what he says here. He has no claim on me. What does that mean? Well, Jesus lived a sinless life. Jesus lived a morally perfect life. Therefore, Satan has no claim, no jurisdiction over Jesus. And this is what then allows Jesus to die, not for his sins, but to shed his precious blood for our sins, those that Satan has a claim over, and to set us free. Okay, That's the language of being ransomed. We have been redeemed by the precious blood of Jesus. He paid the price that our sins required so that as a Christian, in a sense, truly, we can say what Jesus said here, Satan has no claim on me. This is justification. God has forgiven our sins, declared us righteous. As you sit here today, if you are a Christian friend, rejoice in the fact that the ruler of this world has nothing on you, okay? Nothing. You've been set free from him and from death. We are, who has a claim on us? We could ask that question. God has the claim on us. He paid the price. I am his and am his forever. Amen? Okay, amen. That's a wonderful truth. Did you know that? Well, now you do, okay? Now you do. All right, rest of the message, I wanna talk about peace, okay? Because that's the main theme here. Pax Christus. But here is how Jesus says it in the upper room. Again, verse 27. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. That's a verse that deserves to be on a card, doesn't it? Talk about a calming word for the disciples of Jesus, including the disciples here today. This is a word for all of us, and it's a helpful word because I think our world is as crazy right now as it has ever been. Do you sense that? And the fear and the stress, and you know, even this time of year, people are you know carrying burdens and stressed out about everything and the and the geopolitical stuff and and local stuff. All of it adds to the stress and the anxiety. Your life is today as stressed as it has ever been. I can't think of a better word in the whole Bible for you than the one before us today. Jesus offers peace. He offers peace. Amid life's chaos and uncertainties, God's promise of peace stands unwavering. You're listening to The Journey with Steve DeWitt and the first part of a message titled, Peace I Give. To hear it again, visit thejourney.fm. Well, today's message reminded us that peace is not the absence of trouble. It's about having the Prince of Peace with us in the midst of trouble. In moments of turmoil, we can anchor ourselves in His unfailing love and find strength and tranquility in His presence. But there are still millions who don't have access to this peace because they don't yet have a relationship with Jesus Christ. And that's why here on The Journey, we share God's Word every day through the radio and web, enabling listeners to nurture their connection with Jesus Christ and even begin following him for the very first time. But as a listener-supported program, we couldn't do it without you. 
The journey relies in part on the financial gifts of generous friends like you, which allow us to share the truth of the gospel with listeners all around the country. So would you consider giving today? You can call 844-7-JOURNEY. That's 844-756-8763. Or give online at thejourney.fm. And when you do, we'll say thanks by sending you The Upper Room by John MacArthur. During the final hours before Jesus' betrayal, Jesus gave his disciples and all believers throughout history his parting promises. The Upper Room encapsulates the essence of Christ's last will and testament, preserving the timeless words that bring us comfort and assurance. In this book, you'll discover that these promises are not confined to a particular moment in history. They transcend time and are the rightful inheritance of every believer, including you. And you can request your copy by calling 844-7-JOURNEY. That's 844-756-8763. Or visit thejourney.fm. I'm your host, Tim Svoboda. Be sure to join us again tomorrow when Pastor Steve continues the message titled, Peace I Give. That's Wednesday on The Journey. Today's program was produced and furnished by Bethel Church in Crown Point, Indiana.